The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and look to God's Word. As I said, the emphasis will be in uh, Revelation 14 and all of, actually, 15, half of 14. Uh, before I get to that, I've got a question for you. If I were to ask you to fill in the blank, and I said, as a Christian, and here's the uh, sentence where you'd fill in the blank. God is... Love, somebody said. I'll do it again. God is... Okay, all kinds of different answers. That's good. So, um, the common one would be God is love, and that's true. That's right out of First uh, John. God is love. This is very character. And many Christians would say that. Maybe that comes at the forefront of their mind, but there are several others in Scripture that defines God. God is. Many times those are neglected, forgotten. Maybe they're not even... People aren't even aware that those statements are made about God. So, 1 John does say that God is love. But 1 John also says that God is light. That means He is sinless. Can tolerate no sin. God is light. Uh, Hebrews 12 says that God is a consuming fire. That defines who God is. God is a consuming fire. Imagine that imagery in that picture. That means He is a holy God. He must, not only does he hate sin, he must judge sin. He will judge sin. He does judge sin. So God is love, yes, merciful, gracious, and everything that goes along with that. But he's also, it needs to be balanced by a proper view of God, a full-orbed biblical view of God, that he is light, that he is a consuming fire. And I think of Isaiah 6 that says God is holy, holy, holy. The only time in Scripture that God is defined with the same adjective three times in a row, so it's emphatic. God is holy. He is sinless. He can't tolerate sin. He is the judge of sin. Can't even allow it in his presence. So just of those four statements, three of them are have in common the fact that God is a holy God and cannot tolerate sin. I say that because as believers we need a, a balanced view of who God is because your view of God determines everything. Your view of God determines your view about yourself. I don't know if you knew that. And your view of yourself affects how you live every single day. Your view of God affects your view of yourself and it affects your thinking. So God is foundational to everything in life on a practical level. So some people don't like the word theology and doctrine, but you do need to have a biblical theology and a biblical doctrine of who God is because it's foundational for you as a Christian, for me as a Christian. That's the foundation and gives meaning to everything else and it needs to start with a proper view of who God is and unfortunately many times we have a very myopic view of who God is or the world's view of God for the most part is just simply God is love and only love that's real typical but that's not a biblical perspective of who God is it's very deficient and inadequate and really misrepresents God's character so if you'll notice the title of the sermon today is the wrath of God some people might think, ooh, yikes, that's not very seeker-sensitive Well, or seeker-friendly. Well, yeah, it is. I like seekers. You know what I want for seekers? I want the best for seekers. I want seekers to come to know Jesus Christ personally. I want seekers to know God for who He is and everything that He is. I want them to have a proper, legitimate, truthful view of the God who created them. And the God who could save them. And the God who might judge them. So I'm seeker sensitive and seeker friendly. 
And more than anything else, I want seekers or people who don't know God to know God the right way. That is the very essence and the very meaning of eternal life. That's what Jesus said in John 17. Jesus defined eternal life. This is eternal life. What is that, Jesus? That they may know thee, God, and his son whom thou hast sent. Eternal life, the essence of it, is knowing God for who he is properly and accurately. And that starts with knowing God properly for who he is in all of his attributes and in all of his character. And here in Revelation chapter 14 and 15, we're going to be looking at is what comes from the pages is the wrath of God, the character of God. And so if I were to ask you, do you think that wrath or anger is one of God's attributes or it's a very part of his nature inherently and intrinsically, you would have to say yes from a biblical point of view. But don't confuse God's anger with human anger because... Probably just about almost most of the time, human anger is usually vented in sin or a byproduct of sin because it's so hard for humans uh, to do things sinlessly. But God's uh, anger and wrath is pure, it is sinless, it is perfect, it is justified, it is holy, and it's always timed perfectly, and it's always beautifully and perfectly balanced with his other attributes, whether it's his love and his mercy. But God in his very core, nature is a God of wrath. And I had to lay the foundation for that so that we are clear about that. We have to be honest. Scripture talks about it. We can't just ignore those passages because it makes some people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to know that God is a holy God who judges and hates sin. Why? Because I'm a sinner. So it's intimidating. It's fearful. It's frightening. It makes me queasy. That's a good thing. That's the truth of God working on my conscience to conform me more and more into the holy image of Jesus Christ. So being uncomfortable isn't always a bad thing, is it? You know, many times it's a healthy thing when you're being confronted with truth. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this wrathful God of the Bible and what he's going to do at the end of the age in his perfect plan. And to lay the foundation, I just want to show you, let's let's go through the Old Testament together and look through a few passages because, again, These are absolutely essential because things that I'm going to read actually lay the foundation for what we're going to read in Revelation 14 and 15. Uh, Because so much of Revelation comes right out of the Old Testament, is a fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, very, very specifically. One example, the first one, go to Exodus chapter 15. While you're flipping there to Exodus 15, the context is, this is the days of Moses, 1,400 years before Christ. Moses just led... 1.5 million Jews or Israelites through the desert. Or actually, he just led them from uh, Egypt and he's leading them to God's holy mountain. This is at the very beginning. And before they leave Egypt, they got to cross the Red Sea and they get up to the Red Sea and they can't get across. And here's uh, Pharaoh's army with their chariots coming behind and Pharaoh's army is going to come upon the Israelites and slaughter them and the Israelites are fearful. And then God rescues the Israelites at the very last moment. God opens up the Red Sea and all the Israelites are Jews. They cross the Red Sea. It was a miracle. It was historical. It really happened. All the Jews crossed the Red Sea on dry land. And as soon as the last Israelite crossed through, uh, then God supernaturally and miraculously and uh, instantaneously closed uh, the Red Sea once again. And he closed the Red Sea upon the Egyptians and uh, Pharaoh's army and slaughtered and killed and drowned every last Egyptian that was following the Israelites. That's what uh, Exodus 14 says. Every one of them in Pharaoh's army was killed. And the Israelites look back and they see that God had saved them and rescued them because he is their savior. And that's the context and background for Exodus 15, what I want to read right here. 
Then Moses and these two million Israelites are looking back at the Red Sea and they can see horses floating and dead bodies floating and chariots and all that other stuff floating on the sea as a sign and testimony of God's salvific work in their life, rescuing them. And then Moses and the sons of Israel sang a song in celebration as a result. God slaughtered and wiped out all their enemies. And what do they do? They're not mourning. They are celebrating and rejoicing. Well, that seems morbid, some would say. Because some people will say that. But that's what they're doing. This is legitimate. This is good. They were supposed to give praise to God because Pharaoh and his army, they were enemies of God because they were enemies of God's people. And so here's the song that Moses led his people in. They sang this song and they said, verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Boy, what a verse. Wow. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army. He is cast into the sea. Yippee, ding dong, the witch is dead. I remember one time, years ago when I was a pastor at another church, um, and I was a a youth pastor, and my youth group leaders led the music. And they led us in this song called Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, however that goes. Oh, let my people go. And, you know, the song is how God wiped out Pharaoh's army and they're celebrating and rejoicing. And there was an elder pastor that didn't, that was at the church that didn't like that song. And I got a lecture for it. This is morbid. We don't rejoice in the death even of our enemies and blah, blah, blah and going on. I was was just listening. Oh, okay. And then I opened up to Exodus 15. Well, let's read this because I think this Pharaoh, Pharaoh song actually is rooted in Scripture. There are times to rejoice. It's not so much rejoicing in the death of the wicked. It's rejoicing in the justice of God. That's who we're worshiping. We are worshiping God. That he would do right, and he did. So, But I didn't sing that song anymore because I didn't want to offend anybody. But uh, I didn't choose it. The, the youth did. <laughs> but I'll never forget that. Uh, but this song about Moses is referenced in Revelation 15. We're going to see that in just a second. Now go to um, Daniel chapter 7 because this passage is also referenced explicitly in our passage today in revelation daniel one of the major prophets there at the end before the minor prophets daniel chapter 7 daniel again he's in babylon there for probably five decades god raised him up there to be a counselor to these various kings who were gentile pagan kings and he had visions of the end times and he wrote them all down and daniel is like the book of revelation of the old testament because it does, much of it refer to the last times, the time of the tribulation, the Antichrist, uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's the context of Daniel 7 in one of the, Daniel's visions about the end times. He just got, had a vision about the Antichrist, the coming Antichrist. And after that, on the heels of that vision about the Antichrist, after the Antichrist comes, Jesus returns, the Messiah. And that's verse 13 of Daniel 7. Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions and behold... And John in Revelation has a similar vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, he sees these huge, massive, probably white, billowy clouds. One like a son of man was coming. A son of man on the clouds was coming. He's on his way. It's imminent. And he came up to the ancients of days, and that's Jesus and the Father, the Son of Man. So the Son of Man. Daniel was the prophet who coined that phrase, Son of Man, referring it to Jesus. It is prophetic. It is eschatological. It is in reference to Jesus at the end of the age and his work. At least in this context. It's kind of interesting when you go to the Gospels, 
Jesus called himself a few different things. Every once in a while, but very rarely, he called himself the Son of God. But his favorite term for himself was Son of Man. Son of Man. His favorite term. And immediately for the Christian or somebody who knows Old Testament Scripture, Daniel 7 should come into your mind when you hear that phrase applied to Christ. The Son of Man. The One who is coming. The Great Messiah. The King of Kings. The One who will set all things right. Out of Daniel 7, that is Jesus, the Son of Man. It's kind of interesting or almost ironic. The first time Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, I think it's in Matthew 8, 20, where he says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The first time he ever references himself as the Son of Man, he has nothing. The last time we hear of Jesus as the Son of Man, he's about to take the entire earth as his own. What a contrast. And we're going to see that in Revelation 14 and 15. So that's Daniel 7. That's huge. Now go to Nahum chapter 1 if you can find it. Uh, it's before your New Testament. It's a little bitty book. It's one of the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Okay, there it is. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. That's how I find it. But, you know, I talk to people and they, there are people who don't believe that wrath is an inherent characteristic attribute nature of god that flies in the face of scripture i give you a zillions not zillions countless verses and passages i can't read them all got to read a couple though because it sets the stage for revelation 14 and 15 the wrath of god so nahum was a prophet of god and here he wrote starting at verse 1 nahum chapter 1 actually let's start at verse 2 this is the true god the holy god by the way, when it says God, this is also true of Jesus because Jesus is God. So apply this to Jesus. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Wow, jealous? Whoa. A jealous and avenging God is Jesus. A jealous and avenging God is the Holy Spirit. A jealous and avenging God is the Father. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries or His enemies. He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. See, there's the balance. He's very patient. He's supernaturally patient. Patient like no other. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way, and clouds of the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake before Him. The hills dissolved. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? Wow. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Yet the Lord is good. It is a holy wrath. It is a good wrath. It is a perfect wrath. We need to keep that in mind and keep that proper balance. Okay, one more. Let's go to uh, Isaiah. Big book. Isaiah 63, almost at the end. So at the end of Isaiah's book, uh, he starts... Speaking of the end of the age, he speaks much of the millennial kingdom. He also makes reference to the coming of Christ. He also talks about eternity, the new heaven and the new earth. At the end of his book, and in Isaiah 63, this imagery is also picked up in Revelation today. Talking about the Messiah when he comes. Glory, glory, hallelujah. That's what this is talking about. That's where that song comes from. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one, capital 
O, who is majestic in his apparel. This is talking about the coming of the Messiah in the future. This is Jesus described in Revelation. He is marching in the greatness of his mighty strength. He's marching. He's a warrior. He's coming to battle. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? So here's Jesus, the Messiah, and his robes are all wet. They are red. They're splattered with red. What is that from? It's walking in the winepress, stepping on grapes, as it were. But he wasn't stepping on grapes. He was stepping on his enemies and blood was splattering everywhere, even all over his robe. That's what it's talking about. That is the vengeance of Jesus Christ, the coming judge. He came the first time as gracious, humble Savior. He comes the second time as a warrior and judge. Verse 3, I have trodden the wine through alone. Trough alone, sorry. I have trodden the wine trough alone and from the peoples. There is no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. This is Jesus talking. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my, all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. This is all prophetic. And this is all fulfilled in the book of Revelation. So let's go ahead and turn there. Revelation chapter 14 and 15. And we'll start at verse 14, go all the way to verse 8 of chapter 15. Uh, this goes together. And I call this the wrath of God because God is exhibiting and he's manifesting his wrath that he's been he's been patient for 6,000 years of creation and of world history. He's been patient with sinners. God loves sinners. God so loved the world. That means sinners that he came into the world to save sinners. And that's why he sent Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. God has a a saving heart, a merciful and gracious heart. That's the very character of God. And God is providing the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. And yet anybody who willingly and deliberately rejects the offer of Jesus Christ as Savior will receive God's wrath because that's all that's left because God cannot tolerate sin. He must punish it. And that's the context of Revelation is the end of the age of all of God's enemies who has refused to heed the call of repentance. And we've been seeing that through the book of Revelation. God is crying out to the world to repent of sin and come and be saved and come turn to the Messiah. And we've seen several in Revelation who hardened their hearts so much that they knew that it was God who was doing all these judgments and yet they stick their fist in God's face and curse God. And they say they'd rather die under the rocks than repent and be saved by God. So this is a hardened, recalcitrant human heart that deserves judgment and wrath because that's what they want. They love their sin more than they love God, said Jesus in John chapter 3. So that's the context here. It is the wrath of God. It's eschatological wrath, which means it's wrath at the end of the age that fulfills so many different prophecies at the coming of Christ. So let's go ahead and look at 14 through verse 8. And I want to read 14 and following. So follow with me as I read. And I looked. John's having another vision. He's just having these series of heavenly visions about the end of the age. And I looked and behold, a white cloud. That's right out of Daniel 7. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. That is Jesus glorified, majestic Jesus glorified. Sitting on the cloud, his his home is heaven. Sitting on the cloud, one like a son of man, having a golden crown. He's got a Stephanos on his head. That's a crown of victory. He's the victor, the conqueror, the overcomer. Overcomes his enemies. That's the context. Having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. A sickle was a long blade with one sharp edge on it fastened to a long stick like a broom and you would hold it with two hands and swing it back and forth and tread wheat and cut wheat or grass a sickle jesus 
is holding a sickle, and it's a sickle to judge the earth with. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him, to Jesus, who sat on the cloud, and said to Jesus, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Verse 17, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire. This is like sixth angel in chapter 14. Meeting out the justice of God, the commands of God. The one who has the power over fire up in heaven came out from the altar, which is in heaven. And he came and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle, gather the clusters from the wine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, Jerusalem, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of about 200 miles. Verse 5, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last plagues, because in them the wrath of God is completed. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God. And they also sang the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy, for all the nations will come and worship before thee, and for thy righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls or basins full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple of God was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Wow. Chapter 14 and 15, actually chapter 12 through 15 is a prelude to what happens in chapter 16, which we'll look at next week. What happens in chapter 16 next week is the angels pour out the seven last judgments of the seven-year tribulation, symbolized by these seven angels who have these seven basins that are very shallow basins and they, each one has the wrath of God in it. And they pour it down on the earth. And as they pour it, God pours out His wrath on earth seven times at the end of the seven-year tribulation. So chapters 12 through 15 is preparing the way of the judgment of God that's going to happen on earth in Revelation 16. So what's happening of what we just read in chapter 14 and 15 is actually happening in heaven. What happens in 16 is on earth. What happens on earth has a corresponding reality of what's motivated and what's going on in heaven. Everything that happens at the end of the tribulation on earth is planned, meted out by God. That's the point of chapter 14 and 15. Things on earth don't just happen coincidentally, happenstance, through evolution, or by accident. Everything happens in accordance with God's perfect plan. That's the whole point of Revelation 14 through 16. God is in charge. It is horrific. It is solemn. It is frightening, especially for a sinner who doesn't know Christ. But it is all a part of God's plan because it's leading to something greater. God's glory. 
and the forgiven sinner's good. Let's go ahead and look. I just broke this passage down into three points that I want to make about the wrath of God. Well, first of all, why did I call this sermon the wrath of God? Well, because three times in this passage, John writes down that phrase, the wrath of God. The first time is in verse 19 at the end of the verse, the wrath of God. And then chapter 15 at the end of verse 1, the wrath of God. And then at the end of verse 7 in chapter 15, the wrath of God. So as I was studying, I thought for about seven seconds, what should I call this? Hey, the wrath of God. It's got to come from the text. It's what the Bible says, not what I think. So this is about the wrath of God. You can't gloss it over. Uh, you can't candy coat it. It might leave a sour taste in your mouth, but we're just dealing with the truth of God and his word. So let's go ahead and look at it. So God's wrath is meted out at the end of the age, at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Half of this, actually most of this, is prophetic from John's point of view. It's going to happen at the end of the tribulation. This is a foreshadowing of what will happen in Revelation 16 through 19, really. It's a commercial preview. So it's prophetic. And there are three main characters involved who are meeting out God's wrath. It's the wrath of Jesus, the wrath of the angels, and the wrath of the Father, and in that order. Let's look at the first one, which is the wrath of Jesus. And the wrath of Jesus in this passage it is prophetic. It's prophetic of what's going to happen in Revelation 16 and also Revelation 19. By the way, there are two scenarios or two metaphors side by side. The first metaphor is 14 through 16, and that's Jesus who has a sickle, and he's going to... It's the wheat harvest... He's harvesting wheat, and the earth is what he's harvesting. The wheat is bad. 17 through 20 is another harvest with another sickle, and it's Jesus also in charge of the harvest, but it's not harvesting wheat, it's harvesting grapes. So wheat is being harvested in 14 through 16. 17 through 20 is harvesting grapes. I think they also refer to two different events. I believe that 14 through 16 is a preview of the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out in Revelation 16. 14 through 16. I believe Revelation 14, 17 through 20 is a preview of the battle of Armageddon that happens at the end of the tribulation just before the millennium when Jesus returns. So I think it's referring to and is a prelude to two very specific events where God pours out his wrath on unbelievers. And the first one is where God pours out his wrath in these seven bold judgments. And Jesus is the one initiating it. So let's go ahead and look at it. Verse 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. That is, Jesus is the son of man. That is, Jesus is the coming king. But that is also Jesus as judge. Because in John chapter 5, Jesus said publicly that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. All judgment. Now and in the future. So Jesus is the judge on behalf of the Father. And that's what he's doing here. He's got a sickle that he's going to use, and he's just going to plow down his enemies on the earth. It's just very vivid, strong, bold language, the imagery used in terms of how Jesus judges the earth. It is comprehensive. It is instantaneous. It is universal. It is dramatic. It's brutal. So this is Jesus. He is the victor, victor over his enemies, sitting on the cloud ready to judge, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice, the temple of heaven. And communicates to Jesus, now is the time. And God the Father is communicating here to Jesus the Messiah through angels, because that's what he said he would do. Jesus said that in Matthew 25. He's going to execute his judgment through the medium of angels. And that's what God does. He uses his angels to implement so much in Revelation. That is judgment. And this is no different. 
So they notify Jesus. Not that he doesn't know, but they all have a role to play. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice. So it is emphatic, it is authoritative, it is the voice from heaven. Now is the time, Lord Jesus. And it says, put in your sickle and reap. Because the hour, the hour, that's a time frame in history. That's the end of the age. That's the hour that's about to come upon the whole world in the future. That's the seven-year tribulation. That's what the hour is. It hasn't happened yet. It didn't happen in Rome. It didn't happen in church history. It isn't happening right now. It is yet future. The hour, definite article, a very definitive, specific hour prophesied in the Old Testament. Referred to in Revelation 3.10. The hour, the time of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation, as a matter of fact. The great tribulation in the words of Jesus. That's when this is going to happen. Because the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. The end of verse 18 says that the grapes are ripe. Here in verse 15, the wheat is ripe. There's, it's the same English word, ripe and ripe, but they're two different, totally different Greek words. One just refers to wheat and one refers to grapes. The word for ripe in verse 15 refers to uh, wheat that's just long overdue. should have been harvested a long time. It's dried up. It's rotten. The word for ripe in verse 18 is, man, if you let it get any more ripe, it's going to be too late. Those grapes, big, bulky, you touch them and they splatter. The earth is ripe. In other words, God has done everything he, he could for 6,000 years to woo sinners to repentance. And they have refused. So the time is ripe. The end of the age, the ushering of Jesus as king over earth has come. And that's what this sets up. Verse 16. And he who sat on the cloud obeys the orders of the Father that came through an angel and he swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. The details of that and the chronology of that we're going to see are in Revelation 16. That's what this judgment is. It is the bowls from God at the end of the tribulation on an unbelieving wicked earth. And it is still yet future. So that is the wrath of Jesus. Maybe you've never thought of Jesus as having wrath. But he does. Because Jesus is God. So Jesus has all the attributes of God. We've looked at some of those. One I wanted to highlight about Jesus because it's so often we think of Jesus and we just think of just the happy Jesus and uh, the nice Jesus and the loving Jesus. And Jesus is incarnate love, but Jesus is also holy and judge. And so I was thinking of Second Thessalonians when it says when Jesus returns. Listen to this description of Jesus that we don't hear very often. Jesus is going to come in the future and he's going to relieve believers who are being persecuted by the world. And he's going to vindicate believers who are being persecuted. And he's going to repay unbelievers. That means retribution. It is punitive. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. When Jesus returns, God is going to repay with affliction those who afflict you, Christian or believer. And he's going to give, God is going to give you relief at the return of Jesus Christ. To give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. What a contrast from the first time Jesus came, right? The humble Savior had no place to lay his head as a baby. Revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. To do what? Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That's it. That's why people are punished by God, because they reject the gospel. That's why people go to hell, because they willingly, knowingly, intentionally reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is a deserved punishment. It is a deserved wrath. That is the wrath of Jesus, and it is prophetic. It's yet to come. Let's go on to 
another element of wrath, and that's the wrath of the angels, which is 17 through 20. If you went through and counted all the angels in Revelation 14, there's a lot of them. Another angel, another angel, another angel. I think six another angels. It means there, another angel is an, an angel of the same kind, of the same class. These are all good angels, elect angels, angels from heaven doing God's bidding. That's what it means, another angel. And they're implementing God's plan at the end of the age. And so the wrath of the angels. The angels have some wrath to mete out. Verse 17, And another angel came out of the temple. The temp- this temple is the real temple in heaven. And the temple that was built on earth was a facsimile or a shadow of the real temple in heaven. This is the temple of God, where God resides, where His holy presence exists. So this angel is coming out from the very presence of God in heaven. And he, this angel, also has a very sharp sickle in his hand, so he's going to do some judgment. Verse 18. And then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. That's probably the altar of incense that we saw in Revelation chapter 8. The altar of incense had a representative or a shadow on earth as well where the priests offered uh, incense twice a day on the altar of incense and the incense would go up and it was symbolic of the prayers rising to God. Prayers of the saints. So what this is, this is showing us what's about to happen is an answer to the prayers of the saints. Probably the saints in Revelation 6 who were praying for vengeance, justice, retribution from their enemies. And God said, well, wait, be patient. That is coming. Well, here it is. It is coming. These prayers are being answered. These are imprecatory prayers, praying for the vengeance of God. God said, leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And here God is bringing about vengeance upon the earth that is deserved. And he does it through this angel. And I think 17 through 20, again, is referring to the time when Jesus returns. And it's called the Battle of Armageddon. But if you actually read the details of it, like right here and then in Revelation 19, it's not really a battle. It's kind of like a wipeout because he just kind of lands and squashes everybody. That's not really a battle. Like, here he comes, squash. But this is what this is prophetic of. This battle, known as the Battle of Armageddon, um, scholars debate about where it's going to be, where it's going to happen, and I believe it's going to be uh, one of the traditional places. Um, it's not going to happen in Jerusalem. I believe that Jerusalem is going to be protected from this battle because Revelation 11 said, you know, mark off that area, and I think it's going to be protected. Uh, the Battle of Armageddon, based on the Hebrew word and the Greek word, some would say that this is actually uh, the focal point is 90 miles north of Jerusalem, but going down the entire land of Palestine up to almost a 200-mile range because all the kings of the earth are gathered there. All these enemies, it's like just this row of grape bushes that Jesus comes and lands on and smashes. North of Jerusalem, the plain of Esdraelon, it's also known by Mount Megiddo. So I think that's literally going to happen. It is in the future. And that's where the Battle of Armageddon, or the wipeout of Armageddon, I'm going to change that. It's the wipeout of Armageddon is going to be. And so this is picturesque and prophetic of what it's like. And so this angel comes out with a loud voice and makes this strong authoritative command. Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. The grapes here are the kings of the earth who've been... uh, working with probably the Antichrist and the beast and persecuting God's people. And they're all gathered there at headquarters in Palestine in the Middle East where there's a lot of rich resources and oil, the focal point of the world even to this day. 
Put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe, they are juicy. The time is now to execute God's judgment. Verse 19, and the angel swung his sickle to the earth. This is the battle of Armageddon. And gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So these are overly ripe grapes taken and thrown into the winepress. And in John's day, a winepress was made of two huge stone cylinders one was higher one was lower the higher one had a hole in it and you could actually walk around in it with bare feet and you smash the grapes and grape juice is splattering all over the place and then the grape juice runs through the hole and through a funnel down into the lower base and that's what a wine press was and that's the description of this when jesus lands and destroys his enemies that's why in revelation 19 he's got blood all over his white robe because he was smashing his enemies like grapes that's what's going on here this is the manifestation of the wrath of god Three times the wrath of God is mentioned in this passage. Verse 19. There's two words in the New Testament for wrath, the wrath of God. There's orge and there's thumos. And thumos is used three times in this passage. That's, that's more of the emotional venting, outpouring, and action of God's wrath. Thumos is. This is God's wrath in action. Whereas orge is usually reversed, refers to and reserved for God's attitude, his hatred towards sin, where he doesn't actually necessarily act on it. He just has this attitude as a holy God that he hates sin and he will tolerate and he will be patient and he will offer grace. And then at some point he will release that hatred of sin through thumos, through an action of judgment on humanity. And that's what's going on here. This is this passionate, emotional, outpouring manifestation of God's holy wrath punishing those who deserve it, the wrath of God. So verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city. See, this happens outside the city of Jerusalem, I believe, in terms of the focal point. Because when Jesus lands on earth, he lands on Jerusalem. It becomes his headquarters. The winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood from this battle, or this slaughter, came out from the winepress how high? Up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Up to the horse's bridles. That just means that blood was splattering so dramatically, so thoroughly, that the soldiers who were even on horses are getting blood splattered on themselves for a 200-mile range. It's, it's a bloodbath is what it's saying. It is graphic, but it's really going to happen. And this is instigated by the angels of God, the holy angels of God, the wrath of the angels. And their wrath, by the way, is delegated. They don't have inherent power and ability they just do God's bidding at all times. That's the wrath of the angels. That's point number two. Let's go on to point number three, and that is the wrath of the Father, God the Father. This holy wrath we were talking about. And as God pours out His wrath, it is deserved. That's point number three. That's verses one through eight. Talked a little bit about this last week. So starting at verse one, John says, and I saw another sign. Well, another of the same kind of sign. Well, what was the other sign? Well, he saw two signs in chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, right? Which was Israel and her children and offspring and a child, the Messiah. So he saw a sign of Israel in the future during the tribulation. And then the other sign, chapter 12, verse 3, was the seven-headed red dragon who was Satan. So he saw those two signs. Satan was going to reign supreme on earth through the Antichrist and the false prophet for three and a half years at the end of the tribulation, persecuting God's people. And now John has another amazing sign. It's so amazing. He says it is great and marvelous. Man, this sign was just beyond description. Awe-inspiring. What was it? Well, seven angels. These are seven angels of God. 
Well, what do they have? They actually have something. They have the seven, they possess the seven last plagues, the seven last judgments. The word for plague here, I think every single time in Revelation the word plague is used, it's referring to a future plague, a future judgment, eschatological judgment, not historical. This isn't going on right now. This is future. And by the way, the word plague literally means blow, a vicious blow, a vicious wound incurred from a vicious blow. That's what the word plague means. So these are instantaneous, vicious, heavenly, supernatural blows from God on earth. And they're going to happen in a machine gun like fashion. We're going to see in Revelation 16 as God pours out these seven last plagues, these seven last bowls. Uh, so there's seven angels. They are each given. Uh, we're going to see these judgments or these plagues. John calls these plagues the last plagues. They are the last ones to happen. They finish God's business. They complete God's work. They end the tribulation. They are the last ones because there were plagues that came before. There were the seven trumpet judgments were also called plagues. They came before the bowls. The seven seal judgments at the beginning of the tribulation were also referred to as plagues from God. They came at the beginning. Trumpets at the middle. These bowl judgments at the end. They are the last plagues. They finish God's business. Revelation, for the most part, is a chronological book. That's where a lot of people get messed up in trying to interpret it. And they're all over the place. No, it goes in order. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, Jesus returns, beginning of millennium, a thousand years of millennium, great white throne judgment, eternity. That is chronological. Beginning with the church age at the front end of the book. So these are the seven last plagues. Because in them, the wrath of God is finished, completed. And he goes on in his vision, and I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with... So now John is seeing a vision in heaven. And John immediately sees, he sees a throne, but another main feature in heaven, when prophets have visions of heaven, Moses had this vision, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and now John, for the second time, because he had this in Revelation 4, he sees not only a throne, but he sees this sea of glass, this huge... The, the word sea implies... It is just this massive, huge space that is under the throne of God. And it's like crystal. You can see through it. It is glorious. And God's throne sits on the sea of glass. So the sea refers to God's vastness and also His separateness from humanity and creation. God is wholly other. So we always see this time and time again, this sea of glass, as it were. And sometimes it changes color because earlier for John, it was kind of green, just beautiful. But now it's not green. It is like fire red, which speaks of God's judgment is percolating under the glass. That's what he sees. Verse 2, and I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass. Wow, what a great privilege. This was a rare privilege from all the visions we've seen of God in the sea of glass, because usually it's just God's throne on the glass, and maybe some specialized angels near the glass. Rarely do we see a human standing on this glass. What a great privilege. So God allows... The, and so the people that are standing on the sea of glass before the throne of God in the future are believers who got murdered in the tribulation by the Antichrist, because they refused to take the mark on the head or the wrist of 666. And they lost their life for it. They were martyred. And God graciously rewards them with this wonderful privilege of letting them stand on His holy glass before His throne. There they are standing, which means they've come back to life. They've reached the goal and the ideal of humanity, which is resurrection humanity, which is a distinct doctrine of Christianity. 
in the next life is resurrection. We ain't arrived yet. Isn't that good news? My body's falling apart. Well, the good news is we're looking for the resurrection. That's the truth of Christianity. They are standing on this uh, sea of glass, holding harps of God, worshiping God. There's two instruments mentioned in Revelation, the trumpet and the harp. And they're worshiping God, glorified saints who were murdered in the tribulation. And they sing the song of Moses and they're praising God again. They're not so much rejoicing in the death of the wicked because God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says Ezekiel. They're worshiping God for being a holy God and a just God and an avenging God who doesn't tolerate sin. So they're singing this song, praising him for it. And they say, great and marvelous are thy works. O Lord God, the almighty, righteous and true. Righteous, that word refers to God as judge. That's the context. He is being praised for being a judging, wrathful, holy God, righteous and true are all thy ways. It's true and right when God judges his enemies. That's what that means. Because some people say, well, how could God send somebody to hell? How dare he? Wow. How dare you impugn the very character of a perfect, eternal, almighty creator God? That's dangerous. How could God send somebody to hell? God is also a saving God. And scripture is clear. People go to hell because they willingly, knowingly rejected Jesus Christ. That's what John chapter 3 says. That's what 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 said, verse 8. The offer of forgiveness was offered to them. And God must do the right thing. He must punish unforgiven sin. Their sin was not covered by the blood because they didn't believe in Jesus. That's why. So he's righteous as a result. What he did was true. It was accurate. Shouldn't be any other way. Thou king of the nations of the whole world, not just the... God of the church or the savior of Christians. He's the God of the world and every living soul. Verse four, man, who will not fear thee, O Lord? It's a rhetorical question. Everybody should fear thee. You're the creator. You're the judge. For thou alone art holy. The word holy there is a rare and not the normal word for holy. It's not hagias. It's a totally different word. And it's very rarely used. And it just speaks of God's majesty. God, literally, it's uh, for God. You are alone sacred. It sets God apart from humanity. It sets God apart from even sinless, perfected humanity in heaven. Because I am a holy one. I am a saint. I'm forgiven in the eyes of God. I am sinless in Christ. I'm hagias. I am holy. But this word is different. Because even when I get to heaven and I'm resurrected, totally forgiven, I'm not this word because I'm totally separated from God because God is transcendent as the eternal almighty creator who still is worthy of my worship even though I am sinless. So this word here sets God apart for you alone. That's why it says you alone. You alone are totally sacred, transcendent, and holy other unlike anything else in creation. Totally majestic, unapproachable. That's what it means. For all the nations will come and worship before thee. This is fulfilled in the, in the millennium, by the way, when everybody, believers from all over the world will come and worship Jesus Christ and the Father as God. From all over the world, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. Verse 5. So after this vision, John looks again and he sees the temple up in heaven. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. That's the innermost recesses of where God's presence is. And it's up in heaven and something comes out of the very inner recesses of heaven. Verse 6, and who is it? It's the angels. It's these seven angels come out from God's presence with their marching orders is the implication to bring in this final judgment at the end of the age. And these seven angels who have the seven plagues came out of the temple. They were clothed in linen. They were like, well, angels, priests, holy, pure, servants, 
called to duty, clean and bright, girded around their breasts with golden girdles from heaven. Supernatural. Verse 7, And one of the four living creatures, so, there's, so there were these four cherubim around the throne of God protecting God's holiness. We saw earlier in Revelation. God uses those creatures. And one of the four living creatures gives the seven angels each a bull. Verse 7, And these seven golden bowls are full of the wrath of of God. And these bowls are going to be poured out in Revelation 16, and we're going to see that next week. And each time a bowl is poured out, something very specific and devastating happens on earth in the future at the end of the tribulation. So seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And as they come out of the temple, verse 8 says, and the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God. Smoke in the Old Testament in Exodus many times represented God's very presence. And also smoke referred to God's judgment, God's presence in judgment. And that's what's going on here. So God is in his temple. Smoke is coming out. Now is the time. The temple is filled with the smoke. Nobody else is allowed in there except God and God alone. And that's why it says, and no one was able to enter the temple up in heaven until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished and complete. And we're going to see the completion of this judgment next week. Revelation chapter 16. Well, with that, let's go ahead and go to God in prayer. And those of us who know Jesus Christ personally, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you know that He is the God-man and you believe that He died on the cross as your substitute, that He was punished for your sin, and you've asked Him to save you from your sin and to be your Savior, and if you meant it sincerely, in that moment of time when you prayed that, you were saved instantaneously. You became a believer. You were transferred into the family of God, totally forgiven of all your sin, and now you are a child of God, protected by Him in His hand, and no one can snatch you out of God's hand. That's the promise of Scripture if you know Jesus Christ personally. I say that because as you're reading Revelation and some of these dark, eerie, scary parts, if you're a believer, you don't need to be scared or afraid for yourself and your own future. Now, you can fear for others you know who don't know Jesus Christ, and that should be our motivation to pray for their salvation to plant the seed of the gospel, to help woo them to Christ and spread the truth. Great motivation. With that, let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Father, we do thank you for our time together in worship today. We thank you for the church, the precious body of Christ. We thank you for your truth in Scripture. God, I even thank you for the book of Revelation and how you continue to reveal it to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our teacher. Uh, Help us process what we read today about your wrath, which goes against the very nature of humanity. It really flies in the face of how we naturally think, God. So enlighten our understanding with the Holy Spirit to help us have the right balance, really a perfect balance of your love and your justice. And only you can do that for us. And while there's time, God, motivate us to pray for the salvation of those who don't know you and also to be a witness for you wherever we go. We thank you and we give you the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.